Well, if you open your Bible, open an app or whatever you got for Hebrews chapter 2. I know we were in Hebrews chapter 3 last week. I mentioned I was fast forwarding a little bit, but we're going to back up here into Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Um, I know different folks are maybe tuning in or watching us, or maybe you missed a few weeks and just now remembering, oh, that's right, we were studying through Hebrews. But before I read this, because I I want you to step on the landmines, if you will, that are in this verse. I want you to to see them as we read past them and for them to kind of stick to you a little bit. And remember who these guys are, because there's something about their lives that's very much like our lives. So when you pick up the Bible, there's something going on in the original group that the Bible is written to, and it's always helpful to know something about that. So in Hebrews, this is a group of followers who found a relationship with Jesus and they're walking with him, but life on earth has some difficulties and they're discouraged and they're trying to not kind of drift, not give up on their faith. And the book of Hebrews is going to interact with them in that moment. And what does it sound like when you go to encourage somebody who's in that place? So I'm learning lessons here just about what I need to hear in my own soul, but what somebody else needs to hear as well. And there's some big stuff in this passage. There's a word called death in this passage. And I want to take some time today to put us in touch with that word. Uh, in a way that's helpful, in a way that's not casual, in a way that does justice to that word biblically. So listen for this word and the big concepts that are here as we read through the passage together. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, right, that's a purpose phrase, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's huge. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Listen, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So this verse launches us into the same thing that Hebrews says over and over and over again. It's trying to draw our attention to the unique things about Jesus Christ. Consider him. We see him, but we see him. And and just go with me for a second. What do people see when they claim to see Jesus? If you've had conversations with people, maybe you grew up, Maybe at some point in your life, you had some ideas about who he was, what he stood for, why he matters. What do you see when you see Jesus, right? There would be people who I respect, who have have written wonderful books. Frank mentioned one of them, more than a carpenter. Do you see somebody who's more than a carpenter, right? It's the point of the title to catch your attention. If you looked at Jesus and you lived down the street from him and you put together got this apron on. He's got some tools around his belt. He's doing this. He's doing that. Oh, Jesus. I know Jesus. He's the carpenter. And you'd have to be told, no, no, no. He's more than a carpenter. Tim Keller wrote a a book a couple of years ago called Jesus the King. Who did, who do you see Jesus? When you read that book, you, you see a King. Dane Orland wrote a book that number of folks in the church community have read, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Very influential book. How many of you guys can guess when you stare at Jesus through the lens of Gentle and Lowly, you might see something a little bit different than Jesus the King. Right? You might see a variety of things about this Jesus, but the question for us is, what do you see when you see Jesus? Because it's very tempting to see what we'd like to see, what we prefer to see what we think might meet us in the moment, right? So if you had bumped into Jesus, if you could bump him today and, and here he is, he's shown up for a little while. He's lower than the angels. He's shown up among us and you bump into Jesus and you're kind of like, Jesus, what are you doing here? What does his answer sound like to you? What are you going to hear him say? Well, I, you know, I, I'm just here to help teach the world how to get along better. I mean, there's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of, there's a lack of peace. People mistreat each other. I'm just here to, to help, help fix that. You know, I'm, I'm here to give a voice to the marginalized, the down and out, the people nobody else is paying attention to. I'm here to be the hero of the underdog. I'm here to make people's dreams come true. I have power to, to make people's lives so much better than they ever thought they could be. Or, you know, I came to reestablish the, the brotherhood of man. Just goodwill amongst people, put people back in touch with their connection to mother earth and taking care of the planet that they're on. How many of you guys are recognizing there's a lot of people who see Jesus exactly the way I just described him. Can I just tell you, none of that stuff is big enough for this Jesus. Lots of people could interact with that stuff. Jesus came to do something much, much, much bigger than that. Some of those other issues, hey, thank God for people who have helped out in all kinds of category. Thanks for Abraham Lincoln. Gandhi did something to help people in all kinds of categories. Louis Pasteur invented some things and thought through some things. 
touched our lives with some inventions. Sigmund Freud had some ideas about human behavior and what he thought would help humanity if they could just understand this a little bit. Socrates, long before him, trying to explain why life feels the way it is and what you should think about it. There's lots of people who did something that feels like it helped out in some of those categories. But in this verse, the landmines that we step in when you cross this verse just now had things like death in it. And the power that death has in fear to cast a shadow over our whole lives and a living being called the devil who has the power to wield that fear in our lives. I want to know who's dealing with that stuff. See, you need a real savior who comes from heaven to overcome death, to overcome the devil, and to overcome the way in which the devil uses fallen world issues in our hearts. You're going to need something more than a smart guy who can gather a crowd. You're going to need a savior to do that. And that's what's being described here. So when you and I do life, Don't make this mistake. Don't let yourself go here. And you decide what version or piece of Jesus is important. That's a massive mistake. Because I'm not smart enough to know what is it about Jesus that really, really, really matters for my life. I just need to encounter the Jesus that's presented to me in scripture. And the one I'm presented with today is on a mission. And he's on a mission to interact with death. And he's actually going to enter into death as a means of solving death's issue in our lives. And death is a massive issue in our lives. So let me just pull a couple of thoughts here before I jump into the death issue here. Jesus is on a mission, right? Verse nine, <clears throat> but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, there's a reason why he was lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So there's something about him that you cannot overlook here. I'm just going to pull a couple of quick little thoughts out here because if you read Hebrews devotionally and you move too fast through it, you're going to miss something that will inform your beliefs all over the place, right? So first, For a little while, lower than the angels. What is that? Well, that's the Christmas story, isn't it? That's the incarnation. That's Jesus coming to earth in the form of something less than what he was and even lower than another set of creatures that he has created. That's what's being described there. And there's something here about Jesus' mission that requires certain stuff to be true. Don't miss this. Otherwise, you're open to other saviors. The savior who could come and do what we needed him to do, he had to be superior at some point to the angels and then made lower than the angels. Here's what he couldn't be. He couldn't just be right because you've got, you've got something superior in the realm of existence to the angels. And you got the angels and you got lower than the angels. And this is where you and I live, right? This is the assignment of man. We live lower than the angels. Here's what could never save us. Somebody from this group deciding that they would save us. Some human being decided 
I'm going to be the savior. I've got, I've got an idea. I've got an insight. I'm going to do something that's going to save humanity from its problems. A savior cannot come from among us. And he can't just be an idea that gets written in a book and propagated and passed down from generation to generation. To save us, he's got to be bigger than us. He's got to be able to be someone that God could take all that's fallen about us and put it in him and then solve it. So just for a spatial recognition here, <clears throat> how, many, how many people can you put inside of me? Right? I just got room for me right now, so I'm, none of y'all can get in. But you know, even if you could somehow add one person, right? does one person fit in me? One person? So maybe I could save one of y'all. If I, if I could live a perfect life, could I save any of you? I mean, from, from the moment of inception all the way, conception all the way to the end of my life, if I lived and fulfilled all that God required of a human being to do, could I save any of you? I couldn't. I guess that would work for me saving myself because I would never have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore I would not face the penalty of judgment. So who on earth could save a bunch of us? He would have to be a unique individual, wouldn't he? He couldn't just be one of us having a really, really good day. He'd have to be superior to us, which is why he was made for a little while lower than the angels. He was not always lower than the angels. He is the one spoken of for whom and by whom all things were created. He's that person made a little lower. Now, what can you do with him? Well, you can take all of humanity and save in him because he's superior to all of us. So anytime you come across some kind of earthly prophet with an earthly idea and an earthly religious figure, remember what needs to happen to save us is too big for that person. That person cannot swallow up death, cannot defeat the devil, and can't do the third big word in here, which you may have raced past too fast, what we're going to do next week. Can't do anything with the word propitiation. That's a big word. You use that every day? Well, we'll look at that one next week. So for a little while, he was made lower than. We talked about that last week, and I'll scoot by that quickly. And then there's something here that you don't want to overlook too quickly. Who's going to benefit from this? Who's the beneficiaries of the mission that Jesus is on? Well, verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, I know if you're just reading Hebrews devotionally, you're going to read by that really fast, but that is a theological massive statement to make. Because you, you do get this, right? The God of the universe, if you want to understand something about his saving nature, his character, his glorious holiness, there are two sets of creatures that God has made. They are intelligent. They are affectionate. They are worshipers. And God creates both of them. And when God goes to act redemptively, he looks at one group 
who has rebelled and fallen against him. And he sees another group who has also rebelled and fallen against him. And he says, I will save them, but not them. Do you see that? I mean, the Bible didn't have to say what it just said. It said that, and it revealed something. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Why does this matter? Because there's a fairness doctrine that floats around in our universe that elevates, <clears throat> elevates humanity to a place that competes with letting God having the final theological say about our existence. And it makes God answer to fairness. It makes human beings who construct an idea of what fairness is impose that on God and say, okay, God, you answer to this. That's not fair. Can I just warn all of us? You don't want to have a conversation with God about what's fair. If anybody had the right to stand and say, that's not fair, it's the one we're being asked to consider. Jesus Christ should have thrown a flag on the fairness issue. Because it's certainly not fair that the preeminent, innocent, glorious one is made to take the blame for our sin and vile lives in rebellion against God. And he is visited with our judgment. I don't think we want to talk about fairness. But, but here's where fairness comes from. Fairness comes from an attempt to rescue God from being bad in our estimation. Because stuff happens in people's lives. And that stuff happens. Why? Well, because people have a free will. That's a loaded phrase. It's a very hard phrase. But can I just introduce something to you? I don't want to unpack this. This is not where I'm trying to go today. Let me just introduce something. Satan is standing right here and in line are a bunch of his rebellious demons with him. And I'm standing right here next to him. And God looks at us. And God says to one of us, I will save you, but I will not save you. You do recognize that's exactly what happened. And just because it's Satan, we're kind of like, well, of course. Yeah, of course. Wait, wait, wait. Why of course? What did he do that was so terrible? Wait, Satan, Keith, come on. So, so he chose to rebel against God. Is that what he did? And he chose to use his abilities for his own glory and good. Is that what he did? That sounds just like my story. That's exactly what I did. I chose to rebel against God. I chose to use God's creation for my own ends and for my own glory. And God saved me. And he didn't save him. See, when you get some of this stuff and you stand and you sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You will sing those words totally differently. Because you will stand in mystery at the mercy of God. I'm standing right next to a fellow creature. He rebelled against God and no redemption was granted him at all. Jesus did not come to save him. He came to save me. 
man, I may not understand that. But what's new? I don't understand a lot. I just know God said it. He reported it, and he made it very clear to us. Very humbling, isn't it? Very cut the legs out of any sense of arrogance on our part. Because Satan's a little bit of an impressive creature. He's got some game, some talent, some abilities, some beauty to behold. And I'm a little lower than him. And I got saved by what Jesus Christ came to do, and he did not. Humbling. Volume to our singing about the mercy of God. It doesn't it. But here's what's in this passage. Jesus interacts with death. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, he partook of the same things. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong Slavery. So I want to I talk today about this, this issue of death and the devil and how it is defeated and destroyed. And then he goes on and says, the second thing he did in verse 17, that therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Why again? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. So he had to be something. He had to take a certain form in order to demolish death and destroy the fear that it, it creates over our lives every day and to make propitiation. So he had to enter into this death for both of those reasons. That's, that's savior work right there. But let me, let me get an accurate feel for this death issue. And I'll try to do this quickly. There is this unholy trinity that exists in our world. It's powerful and it shows up in our lives. And it is death, the devil, and fear. Those three things have formed an allegiance and an alliance in our lives. And they reach out and they touch us, right? Verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Death has power. There's something about this concept that has power in this world. And deliver those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So it's almost as though this, this character death in this drama cast a shadow over all of our days. Not just the ones at the end. Not just you got a diagnosis and you now know you only probably have so many days left. And then all of a sudden, for your first time in life, you encounter something of a disorienting impact of death in your life. Do you think that's how this works? I think the fear of death and the enemy using it against us starts as quickly as you can figure anything out in your life. Anything. The threat that death is going to take this from you. The fear that you and I live in on a daily basis is touched by death and the devil in a unique way. And it's a powerful thing. And it travels with us through our lives. So I want to help us see something today, help us walk with each other as we travel through these moments. But death is a big deal, right? So let me just introduce us to this character. What is death? 
Well, in the scriptures, we first meet death in Genesis chapter 3, even though he gets introduced to us in Genesis chapter 2, but he comes on the scene in Genesis uh, 3. So Genesis 2 describes him this way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So this is death being introduced to us in this setting. Death was not in the setting yet. He's just introduced as a possible character in our drama. And then Romans 5, a lot of verses that would fill in some details for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So how does death become this everybody, every person, no one escapes reality? Well, it entered through disobedience and rebellion. Disobedience and rebellion was death's doorway into the human drama. Without disobedience and rebellion, death would not have come on the scene. But he entered through that door and that door was provided by Adam and Eve. But lest any of us be thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that if I had been there. Well, Romans 5 kind of says, yeah, death spread to all men because all sinned. So yeah, I would have done that too. I would have been right in there opening the door for death to show up. But here's the essence of death. Death is is a separation. The essence of death, I would say, is a separation because it's not a ceasing of existence completely because Adam and Eve, the day that they ate, they experienced death, but they didn't fall to the ground dead, right? They continued to have a heartbeat. There was brain activity. There was, there was experiencing of life, but surely, as God said, those two right there are dead. In what way? They, they were spiritually separated now from God. Their connection with God suddenly, and it it was disorienting. Death is always disorienting. When it gets around our lives, it is terribly disorienting. It disoriented them the second it showed up. And they were no longer connected to something that had been life to them. And thus, what a different experience. Death is spiritual before it's natural, Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead, but you were walking. And you were following. So it looks like you can be dead and do stuff. So on on the one hand, you are dead, but on the other hand, you're living. What kind of death is this? It's not a heartbeat issue yet. It's a spiritual issue. You were dead. First John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, that's a spiritual reality. People walking and doing life and expressing faith travel in and out of spiritually, whether or not they are alive or whether they are dead. And then lastly, death is also a physical, natural, and experiential certainty. 
And I want to spend a little few moments in this one because I, I, we've, we've traveled through a difficult season as a church. We've had people that we are attached to and that we love dearly who have experienced death. And the shadow of it is not just your death that this is casting a shadow. It's not just like you're going to die one day. It's death all around us that casts a shadow on us. And so this has been a tough season these last couple of years where death has showed up in many of our lives, in people that are near and dear to us. And I want to explain, maybe let us get some insights today to, to better understand why is this so disorienting. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, Genesis 1 and 2 shows us humankind put by God into a world without death or suffering. The evil we see today was not part of God's original design. It was not God's intent for human life. That means that ultimately when a peaceful death at the age of 90 years old. But that's not the way things were meant to be. Those of us who sense the wrongness of death in any form are correct. We were not meant for mortality, for the loss of love, or for the triumph of darkness. You understand, when God created Adam and Eve, he doesn't wire them for one of them to die. He doesn't put them in the garden and say, okay, now listen, uh, you guys, hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, uh, but, and, and also be prepared. One of you is going to die before the other one. And the other one's going to need to just keep going. But, but you're all wired up for that. You understand when God gives Adam and Eve to each other, there's no end in sight. It's not supposed to end. All the attachment, all the care, all the connection, it's not supposed to be severed. It's not designed. It's not like somebody put a plug there, like he's sticking a wall outlet. Okay, plug in for a little while, we'll unplug. We'll plug back in and we'll unplug. It's not designed that way. It's a ripping and a tearing and a feeling that has no explanation for where is this supposed to fit in my world. So if you're wondering why death, when it happens around you, is so disorienting. Because separation and loss is powerful. It's not what we're prepared for. It's not what we're designed for. J.I. Packer wrote a very interesting book called A Grief Sanctified. And his thoughts are extremely helpful. J.I. Packer is a historic theologian and full of great helpful insights. He draws these thoughts from a Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter. And he writes about Baxter's experience of losing his wife and the grief that he experienced. And he wrote a book about that. And Packer talks about that. But he asks this question, what is grief. Now, let me just say this. If I were to slap a definition on grief, I would say grief is the sensory response to death. It's the, the feeling we experience when death touches the exposed nerve of life in us. Right, you, ever, you ever had a tooth issue? Go to the dentist and they stick that ice thing on you. 
Anybody ever have that happen? And then they peel you off the ceiling right after that? It's like a nerve got directly touched by something. It's like so it's almost like life is a nerve. And death comes along and goes right to it and touches it. And oh, it is disorienting. It is so sensitive. And we feel it in a way like nothing else we've ever felt before. He says, grief is the inward desolation that follows the losing of something or someone we loved. A child, a relative, an actual or anticipated life partner, a pet, a job, one's home, one's hopes, one's health or whatever. Loved is the key word here. We lavish care and affection on what we love and those whom we love. And when we lose the beloved, the shock, the hurt, the sense of being hollowed out and crushed, the haunting, taunting memory of better days, the feelings of unreality and weakness and hopelessness and the lack of power to think and plan for the new situation can be devastating. It says grief at the loss of a loved one is as old as the human race. Everyone who loves will experience it sooner or later. And the greater the love, the greater the grief when the time of loss arrives. As the enjoyment, as the enjoyment of another's love invigorates one inside, so the blow of losing someone near and dear drains strength from both mind and body for months and perhaps years. And if the bereavement was unanticipated and not prepared for, grief hits harder and hurts more. Grief is regularly more draining and harrowing than we thought it could be. If you have had the nerve of your life touched by that kind of loss in your life. Those are profound words. I found Packer's book to put words to things that remain wordless in us. Just the struggle of why do I feel this way? Because death is powerful and the book of Hebrews points it out, doesn't it? He who had the power of death. It wasn't just that death is a thing. It's got power. It reaches into our world, into our soul, into the very depth of us, and it touches a nerve. I think I wrote this in your outline. Death contains elements of separation, disruption, and disorientation, loss, ending, finality. We are haunted and stalked by this character that threatens to change and end the things that bring us security, joy, love, affection, purposeful activity, pleasurable connections, meaningful sharing. Now be very careful, Christian. 
Because that list right there is stuff that we get from each other. So do not do this to another person. Make them feel like they're wrong because they're looking for any of that stuff outside of Jesus. And like, oh, if you lose the most important person in your life, you should just be able to bounce back from it. Because you're supposed to be getting your joy and your love and your affection and your purposeful activity from him. Oh, you're not human who says that to another person. If you read your Bible, God tucks grace and love and joy and experience throughout his creation. You don't just get it all directly from God. You get it from the variety of places God has tucked into your life. And when you are suddenly separated from that, you will feel strange. And you will need some kind of help that you can't even figure out how to put into words. So be very careful when you try to become the person who's going to fix this with your words. The savior of the world entered into death. Fixing this was a whole lot bigger than just saying a few things from heaven. He entered into death in order to deal with the power that death has over us. Listen, this is, this is the loss of a loved one like no other. And the, the more they are attached to us, the more impact death has and the more of a shadow it casts over our lives. But death arrives in a variety of categories in our lives, right? It's not just a person, right? Andy Farmer's written an excellent book. Andy's a pastor in Sovereign Grace, what a book called Real Peace. And he says, and all of us can relate to this. (laughs) I cried just reading it. I remember when we moved out from our first house to the house we live in now. The facts were that we were moving to a nicer home in a better area, closer to friends and fellowship. The day we closed on the sale, I took one last walk through the now empty house. Anybody done that? I have. The house where all my kids had been born, where we had learned how to be a family. I couldn't stop crying. I wasn't losing my children. They were moving with me. But I was losing part of my life just the same. It was a part I'd never get back. And I was grieving its loss. To this day, when I drive by there, I tear up. Life is filled with many small and monumental grievances. These are but a reflection of the great end, irreclaimable loss we know as death. See, death can bring things to an end that we just weren't prepared for how that was going to feel when it happened, when it ended. There's something about separation and ending. You remember there was an eternity that God had installed in creation. There was a forever connection and a forever sense. Things would continue into eternity, Adam and Eve. They would have subdued the earth and continued and continued and continued. They had children and grandchildren and great, 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 and on and on and on and on. And then death came in and changed it all. There's nothing on this planet like death. This is why you need to be very careful in who you pick as a savior. 
Because it's very hard to undo death. It takes a unique being in the universe to be able to match death and its power in our lives. And that's what you have in Christ. But on this scene, you have a devil in this story. You have a devil who is going to seek every opportunity to leverage fear in our lives. He loves fear. It is the tool that never leaves his side. Because there's something about living in a fallen world that introduces us to vulnerability. We know in a fallen world, stuff happens. Things can suddenly change. Things can end. Somebody can get a disease that they never had. Some accident can happen and suddenly your whole world is different and you feel that. And the enemy lives in that space because he knows once I get fear active in your life, oh, those other things like love and joy and peace will fade into silence in your life. I can make fear so loud in your life. And the Bible turns around and says, you know what? What he's doing with that? Because he has the power of death. Now listen, I don't think he's got the power to kill you. I don't think that's what that means. I don't think he's sitting around saying, kill that one next. Yeah, him too. You can let her keep going for a little while longer. But kill that one and that one and that one today. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching. I think there's a sovereign God who's ordained the days of our lives. But having the power of death is to bring its influence and its shadow of all of its uncertainty and its separation and its loss to bear on how we do life. That's a powerful experience. And there are people in our lives. Why is this so threatening? Well, there's people in our lives. Remember what Packer said? What's grief? It's an inward desolation that follows the losing of something or someone we loved. We lavish care and affection on what we love and those whom we love. And when we lose the beloved, the shock, the hurt, the sense of being hollowed out and crushed, when you have invested and given and poured your life into another person and you have built connections with them like nobody else, and suddenly death comes along and ends that. Packer goes on and says, the idea sometimes voiced that because Christians know death to be... For believers, the gate of glory. They will therefore not grieve at times of bereavement is inhuman nonsense. If death reaches over and touches the nerve ending of you as a living creature, oh, you're going to feel it. Even though you know other things are still true even though you know eternity, even though you know about the resurrection, even though you know Hebrews tells you about a savior who conquered death, when death touches your nerve ending, you are going to feel it. And I wish I could do something that that wasn't true. And I'm I'm not gonna apologize for the fact that You know, when God gives a good gift, God has given me a good gift in my life. So the thought of her not being in life with me is unbearable. I don't have this thing floating around inside of me. Well, it'll be all right. No, there's something in me that says it will absolutely not be all right. Because everything about life has been wired into her. 
all the shared experiences, all the relationships, all that we do, all the ways in which we see life, the things that we travel through, the companionship that we have, the memories that we share. That's true of you if you're married. And so the idea that, oh, well, well, I'm sure God's got purposes and plans beyond that, that moment. Although I'm, I'm praying I'm going first. Um, it's merciful, isn't it, honey? I'm going to let you deal with that. But she's braver than me in a lot of ways. But when you travel through things that you join your life to, you know, it could, it could be empty nest. It could be the death of a season in your life. Things that God has transferred grace back and forth into your life through that it ends. And you're going to feel it in a certain way. So let me just say this. I know I'm a little bit over today, but we have a lot to cover. I just, and, I, and I need to land in a place that this passage exposes us to something. Jesus is on this mission, right? He has come to enter into death. He has come to wrap himself in it for our sake. He tasted death for us. He was seeking to accomplish something for our good. But how does he destroy and deliver? Those are the two words here, right? There's a destruction here in this passage. There's a deliverance here in this passage. What do you and I think that's going to mean as we do life here on earth? Is that just a rah-rah thing? Jesus is victorious over death. Let's sing some songs. Let's together rah-rah. Jesus is victorious over death. But when death touches the raw nerve ending of your life, you're still going to feel it. So how does he do this? A couple of ways in which he doesn't do it. He does not do that by eliminating our future experience of physical death. Jesus comes, he fulfills his mission, he dies in our place, he is resurrected from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And you know what? From now on, just as many people die from that moment forward as who were dying before. So we cannot have the thought that what Jesus did is going to somehow rescue us from people in our lives and from us having to cross that threshold of death. And God has not done something wrong in that moment. His plan was not to rescue us that way. Secondly, he does not overcome death through the gift of healing. We pray for people who are sick. We pray for people who are in dire moments. And we should. The Bible instructs us to. Healing is not given to us as a remedy for death. That's not why it's in the Bible. You will recognize miraculous people who were healed in the Bible still died. Throughout church history, people some of us have prayed for that miraculously things changed for them and then they still died. It's as though death may have gotten moved a little bit, but death stays in the horizon of our lives. So 
where, where's, the, where's the help in this moment, in this shadowy character who is standing and the enemy is leveraging him to speak to us? Where, where's the help in this? Well, two things I'm going to highlight and then we're going to pray. And I want to pray for folks who are in the throes of, of having had an exposed nerve touched by death. But there are two things in scripture that I think stick out more than anything else in this category that the Savior brings to us, the one who defeated death by entering into it, yet it still is in our world and it still has a shadowy presence to us. Those two things are his presence and a new future reality. Those two things the Bible pulls into this arena with death with us. Right, so you remember this, his presence, Psalm 23, verse four, even though I walk, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Am I not gonna fear evil because I know the outcome? Am I not gonna fear evil because somehow I believe in a God who will never let anything bad and uncomfortable happen to me? Is, is that what I think this says? the sense of rescuing me from the evil, right? Because the power of death is present in that dark valley. And so I'm in the shadow, but what's rescuing me from its torment, he's with me. I know he's with me. And that's big. And Jesus even said something that you might read this too fast. John chapter 16, he says, behold to his disciples last night that they're together. The hour is coming, indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. The father is with me. Even Jesus makes a big deal out of the presence of the father being with him. I have said these things to you, but that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And lo, I am with you all the way to the end. And I don't, I don't get everything, but there's a simplicity here. And there's a simplicity I want every person who's had the, the raw nerve ending of your life touched by death to hear there's something about, and it's mysterious, there's something about the presence of God with you in this moment. It doesn't change the circumstances. You may still be in the valley of the shadow of death, but there's something about his presence that even Jesus knew. What Jesus was about to do was the darkest valley anybody ever walked through. And as he walked through that, it wasn't, you remember he's gonna go to the garden next and he's gonna pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What he knew when everybody got scattered and he was left by himself, the Father will be with me. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. There are some here that you feel so alone. And as I read this week, there were some quotes that were so hard for me to read, knowing where some of you are, I chose not to include them. I couldn't have read them. Grief and loss and separation, you feel separated. You feel alone. You are in this room. Hundreds of people are in this room with you. You feel alone right now. 
what can fix that? Well, I don't know what can fix it, but I know what you need is the presence of God. You need to experience the nearness of God coming into this moment with you and just reassuring you he's not left you. He is with you. He is traveling through this season with you. He is in this valley of the shadow of death and he will not leave you. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 73 said, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I don't know how that fixes a raw nerve being touched, but it is the hope that God offers to us. There's something about his presence that is unique in this. One last thought. Seth, go ahead and come back up, buddy. There is a promise that we're supposed to be informed about and we're supposed to be thinking about and we're supposed to be welcoming in our lives. This promise doesn't make your sense of right now separation go away. But it is given to us as something we have to cling to. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. This is the first thing you can understand about this place, right? You just see some stuff mysterious coming. The first proclamation, a loud voice from the, from the throne saying what? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Does presence matter? Oh my gosh, does presence matter? Yes, the new heaven and the new earth, the feature thing is you are going to experience the presence of God like you've never experienced before. That's going to be the biggest thing about this place. Streets of gold, yeah, cool, all kind of shiny stuff happening. That's great. But what gets proclaimed first is God is with us. He's among us. He is near to us. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How does death finally lose its influence and its shadow gets turned off forever? It takes a new heaven and a new earth to do that, which could never have happened if Jesus Christ was not our Savior. But I just want us to be aware the fullness of that is not yet here. So if what's really, really real to you is the sense of separation and loss, do not put yourself on some kind of guilt trip like you're some kind of half Christian. Because if you really believed and you really had faith in God, you wouldn't feel this way. I don't know who told you that. But they need to read the Bible a lot more carefully. You got the same wiring that Adam and Eve had. They were not wired for separation and loss. It is shocking and strange. And you're going to need something supernatural. 
You're going to need the presence of God to be bigger than that. So can you understand what God does is he overwhelms things in our lives. Sometimes he doesn't eliminate them. He overwhelms them. He puts something bigger here, right? So death is big. We've got a lot of little things in our life. Death is big. God comes along and says, I'm going to put something bigger than death in your life. I'm not going to make death go away just yet. I will, but not just yet. I'm going to put something bigger in your life. Me. The one that one day you're going to see face to face. And I'm going to wipe away the tears. And the pain of your raw nerve, you'll never feel it again, ever. Let me just let you sit. I want to pray and I don't even want to identify anybody this morning because I don't, I don't want you to have to figure out, should I acknowledge publicly that I'm in a season of grief, that I feel a loss that's become debilitating in my life? That's between you and God. I just want you to be honest with him because your loss could be somebody that you have built your whole life into and now you feel lost and separated and alone. Or it could be that you've come to the end of a season of your life and, and you feel something like that. Something has ended and there's finality that's there. Or, or maybe the possibility of something that you had longed for and hoped for and prepared for is, is not going to happen. And you're in a season of the shadow of death. Let's just bow our heads and invite the Lord who is among us by his spirit to help us. Lord, we have been learning about something you called in Hebrews this great salvation. We have been directed over and over again to consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who there are things unique about him like nobody else to look to. And Lord, these are powerful problems brought up in this passage. Death, the shadow of death, the fear and vulnerability that it brings to our lives. Lord, these are powerful. But you enter into them so that you could manage them for the rest of our lives and then you could put an end to them for all eternity. You who are redeeming us from what Adam and Eve welcomed into humanity, you are rescuing us out of it. So what I pray for, I pray for your presence, Lord, among us. I pray for widows in this room. who are struggling to do every day, who feel strange. And the whole world looks like it's a different color. In every familiar setting, 
just feels like something's not right about this setting and that setting and this setting and that relationship. And the raw nerve of life has been touched by something. But Lord, you made a promise to us that could find its way into these moments with us, that though we walk through these valleys, the shadow of death, we are assured of the one thing that we need more than anything else. You are with us. Your spirit is present. You have given us a promise. You would never leave us and you would never forsake us. And that your mercies would be new every morning. So Lord, for every person who is struggling as they walk through a moment where death has been pronounced and effective, Lord, would you this morning awaken in them a fresh awareness that greets them every day and greets them in every hollow moment that you are near to them, Lord, your presence, that which is awaiting its fullness in a new heaven and a new earth, Lord, you have shared with them right here and right now. You are near to them right now. And Lord, let that leave a mark. Let that larger presence push the shadows to the edge of life. And let your grace swallow up those who are here. Lord, those who are watching, God, our hearts are with them. God, we are with them, though they may feel alone. Lord, we are with them. And we pray for them. We commend them to you. Lord, you are sufficient for us in the darkest of places. Find us in these shadows and bring unique comfort and care as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Sorry for going over a little bit. Uh, I know we're going to do a a number of things right now. I I think there's a guest reception. I know we're also going to seek to pray for Ben and Jen and their family. Um, So you're welcome to join us as we do that. And I think there's a lunch as well for the seniors. So a lot of stuff happening on your way out today. Um, Love you guys. Thanks for being here.